Hello everyone, my name's Jack Fernan and this is Exploring Existence, the podcast that looks at the teachings and practices of the world's religions through history, culture and personal experiences. Today on the podcast, I went on a tour at Ely Cathedral. Thank you to everyone at Ely for having me, particularly Chris Flatman and Rebecca Mundy, and to the Ely Boys Choir for letting me record Even Song, which you will all be hearing throughout the episode. While I'm sure you'll all find the descriptions of the cathedral throughout the episode totally encompassing, you can find photos of the tour to Ely on our Instagram page at exploring underscore existence underscore podcast. And of course, thank you everyone for joining us and I hope you enjoy the podcast. My first trip out into the field didn't start as planned. I arrived at the train station at Cambridge in the UK with the intention of catching the 1013 train to Ely, a small town in England's East Anglia. However, with the ever-threatening presence of Murphy's Law, I was informed that a signal failure meant that all trains heading north were either severely delayed or cancelled. After some kind inquiring about when the service would resume, the helpful folk of Greater Anglia Trains put an Irish gentleman and myself in a taxi for the 40-minute trip to Ely. As the taxi made its way through unseemly traffic and unsown fields, and the conversation veered from cricket to COVID, I caught my first glimpse of the cathedral arising out of the farmlands. It is known locally as the Ship of the Fens for the way it looks like from afar, a great celestial ship sailing along the East Anglian skyline. On arrival at Ely Station, I met my companion and guide for the day, a cathedral guide named Rebecca Mundy, who had kindly walked down from the cathedral to show me the way from the station. We quickly got past pleasantries, and as we walked our way along the River Great Ooze, lined with canal boats, we talked about how Rebecca had come to Ely and fell in love with the community and the cathedral. We approached the cathedral from the southern end, through fields of grazing cows on our right, and a tree-covered knoll that constitutes the ruins of the Ely Castle on our left. As we got closer to the cathedral, we were fronted by the side-on facade of this impressive house of worship. The western tower stands at its pinnacle, but the feature of the cathedral that really draws the eye is the octagonal wooden lantern that sits on the central crossing of the cruciform-shaped building. While wandering up to the south entrance, I tried to picture the landscape of the area as it had been before the cathedral was erected in 1083, when it was a simple abbey and what life would have been like for the monks and nuns who lived here. It was a time before the Normans had invaded, when the east of England was subject to continued raids by the Viking menace from across the sea, and the seven kingdoms of Anglo-Saxon England all vied for position and power. Yet in this changing and tumultuous environment, a small community of monks and nuns lived in these grounds from the late 7th century, with a sole purpose, the glorification of God. We entered the cathedral from the southern entrance and walked through some cloisters and then immediately into the central crossing. A simplistic octagonal altar adorns the middle of the cathedral, and as we walked to its centre, Rebecca began by telling me about the story of Ethelreda, the founder of the first abbey. So where would you like to start, Jack? <laughs> well, we've just walked into the middle, haven't we? Yes, yes, this is why I thought maybe we should... Do you want to start at the West End and sort of view it? Nah, I reckon straight into the middle. Straight into the middle, well, there's a good reason for starting here, even though it's the jewel in the crown and we probably should have come in the west door and built up to it. But um, can you see on the capitals of the columns, so if you follow the column up there, and can you see the carving on the capital there? Yep, yeah. 
That's the story of Ethelreda, our founding saint. Um, this, we'll, we'll talk about the octagon and lantern, I'm sure, later, but this was made, uh, built in the 14th century and they carved this into the capitals. Um, Ethelreda, still today in the 21st century, is still a very important part of our history and our worship. And um, so, would you like to start with the story of Ethelreda? Yeah, please, yeah. <laughs> you'd like to follow me? So, the story, there, I must disclose at this point, there are some discrepancies over what various historians think these depict. Um, yeah. I'm going to go with a couple, I think, including Lynn Broughton, and um, tell you this version. You will read possibly a couple of other slightly different versions of it, but the main parts of the story are still the same. Well, any bit of history that's uh, universally accepted is probably a lie. Yeah. So. Well, actually, an aside before we go on is that that's the wonderful thing about being a guide and constantly studying the history of this. You can have a visitor who can question you, and to be honest, they could possibly be as right as you are <laughs> yeah. now, or, or, you know. So, um, yeah, so Ethelreda um, was a Saxon princess. She was um, born to King Anna, so that was when England was divided into the Seven Kingdoms, the Heptarchy. And, and not yet invaded by the Normans, obviously. No, no, the, so the, this is 7th century. Yeah. Um, so um, she... Her father ruled in, um, his court was in a place called Exning, which is just outside of Newmarket. Still exists today, um, it's just an extension of Newmarket, and to be honest, when you drive through it, you wouldn't realise it was the place of a royal court once Blink upon a time. Um, Anna and his daughters were uh, one of the sort of first Christian families in this country, we say within sort of probably about 50 to 70 years, you know, Christianity had been brought over here, but they were devout Christians. And Ethelreda wanted to devote her life to God. But you can imagine her father being king, um, she's a political tool. So he marries her off to a local tribe leader called Tombert. And I don't know if you can see Jack to the left, there's sort of a an officiant in the middle and a lady and a man either side so this depicts the first marriage of Ethelreda. Tombert's really important in this story because he gave Ethelreda the island of Ely as a gift. Um, we think, uh, uh, you know, we're not sure whether it's, it was a wedding gift so much but it, you know, it was bestowed to her by him. Um, I mentioned Ireland, Ely was, or still is, basically a lump of clay surrounded by flat land, um, but back in the 7th century when Ethelreda was alive, this flat land would have been covered by swamp and water, it would have been malaria around here, quite a dangerous sort of place, so um, not much of a present, <laughs> possibly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the jewel in the crown goes to the wife. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so Tombert didn't live too long into their marriage. He died um, in battle with his father-in-law, King Anna. Um, and at this stage, Ethelreda retreated back to an area. We're not sure that it's actually where Ely is today, but within, you know, close proximity 
to what were now her people, so she was now living with Tom Burt's tribe, and was sort of intent on devoting her life to God and her people. However, she um, was a little unfortunate. I think I gave it away earliest by saying first marriage. Um, <laughs> she was married off again, um, again as a political pawn, to Prince Egfrith. Um, Egfrith was the son of the king of Northumbria. So that was one of the northernmost kingdom of the Heptarchy, still pretty much where Northumberland is now, um, just below the Scottish borders. And if you'd like to wander round with me, Jack, we'll, yeah. we'll actually sort of show you this. So we're moving on to the next capital. And this is the second wedding here. And again, you can see the officiant in the middle. But you're young, you've got good eyesight. Can you sort of see they're almost being pushed together? She's sort of got her back arched. It's like it's, a, it's an unwilling marriage. Yeah, she's really being forced. Yes, as I say, she's being forced into the marriage. Um, as I said, she was a devout Christian and part of that devotion would have been chastity. Probably what I should have mentioned is Tombert did respect her vow of chastity. Again, we were sort of, you know, joking about the wedding present and the, the Isle of Ely, but also she probably was a trophy wife, the 7th century equivalent of a trophy wife. She was the daughter of the king, so he was probably, again, we're, you know, we're making assumption, but, um, you know, he was prepared to respect her vows because he had claimed this, you know, prized, dare I say, possession. Would that mean that he um, had other women who he was hoping to... Um, yeah, continue so, his reign through? I don't know. As, a, um, as you can imagine, sort of the Anglo-Saxon history is, you know, with limited resources. Sure, um, yeah. You know, the Venerable Beads, one of our main sources of the, the history of Ethelreda, um, and that was written, you know, sometime after the event. So, yeah, uh, yeah that's a really fascinating question. And that's the other lovely thing about being a guide. I will now be asking my colleagues, does anybody know that? You know, <laughs> sure. so thank you. <laughs> so, yes, we've got the second marriage um, to Egfrith. Egfrith was said to have only been about 13, 14 years old when they got married. So, as you can probably guess, he wasn't that interested in a wife. So, Ethelreda asked if she could take the veil. So, if you'd like to follow me so we've moved on to the next capital and again can you make out the figure you can see an altar and can you make out the kneeling figure of Ethelreda taking the veil yeah just to the left of the altar yep so this was up in Coldingham um, again that still uh, exists around the Scottish borders um, I don't think the original convent is there but there are still gardens um, you know, remembering the spot where the convent was. And probably won't surprise you to hear the next sort of parts of the story. Egfrith grows up, his father dies, he becomes king of Northumbria, and there, in answer to a sort of a previous question, he needs a son and heir. Um, the story goes that Ethelreda got word of this, and she decided to run away. And I always say run away, but um, if you sort of think about the geography of the UK today, so 
if I dropped you, drove you up to the Scottish borders, threw you out the car and said, get back to Ely. I mean, in the 21st century with roads and pathways, it would be a difficult journey. So can you imagine in the 7th century? No roads, well, tracks, um, you know, it would have been wild, dangerous, desolate. Um. You'd have to be uh, very, very determined to, first of all, set out, but then make it. Exactly. Um, and possibly have God on your side. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, again, if you'd like to move on, we'll move on to the next capital. Um, so she ran away. At this stage, you've got to remember, she was born a princess, but now she actually is officially also a queen because her husband has been made king of Northumbria. So she's got two ladies in attendance and um, one of the stories is that one night she falls asleep and she's got a wooden walking staff and she puts that staff in the ground and when she wakes in the morning the staff has sprouted so again you can see the prone figure of Ethelreda, her two ladies in waiting and you can see the tree behind her yeah um and it's i'm not going to give you an exam jack but this will recur later on so yeah bear this this one so this is supposed to have been the first of the miracles of Ethelreda. Um, they say i think stow green uh, in the east of england is supposed to be where that tree is now okay if, wow. I, if, if i've got that right and i haven't made my pilgrimage there so so we'll move on to sort of the next of Ethelreda's miracles so again, can you see on the left, men on horses? Can you make out the sort of three men? Oh, There's yes. one horse yes. looking at us, and I think and the two the side. sides on. Yeah. And then you've got ladies on the other side. Um, I think if I can see, or they look like they're praying. And they look like they're praying to me. Yeah. <laughs> yes. um, and they've got to a place called St Ab's Head. Again, still in existence. Um, and my geography and the story gets all a little bit mixed up and hazy here they get to St Ab's Head the story is the tide goes out and they get across so um, like where Moses through the Red Sea type exactly escape. yes um, actually I hadn't thought of it but yeah you know a very similar analogy once again having God on your side yep yeah <laughs> I mean you're getting the idea that this is a chosen lady yes yeah. Um, so they get across, and the men on horses, um, Egfrith and his men, are chasing, trying to reclaim his wife. And when they get there, the tide comes back in, and they can't reach her. And the, so say the story goes, um, as we've already mentioned, these are stories written a couple of hundred years after the event, and then passed down over the centuries. So they do get a little bit twisted over the, you know. The mists of time but um, at this point Egfrith decides to let her go he does actually remarry um, and I don't think he was successful in having a son and heir um, if I'm right and right. so uh, so now she's making her way back to Ely and, and so she's always remembered that this has been this is her this is her home this is her home this is her yeah. piece of land and yeah and she's got a safe space here Exactly, yeah, this place is special to her um, and I suppose that's what makes it special to us today because, you know, she thought so much about it and then 
most of the story of this building does all rest on what she did. Yeah. Most, actually, probably wouldn't be wrong to say all of the, you know, um, if it wasn't for her, we would there even be a town of Ely today? Or, sorry, I beg your pardon, a city of Ely today? Um, you know, you have to question that, we'll never know, but it's a good possibility that this would just be a... Because you mentioned that um, it was what she built here was the first things to be built here. Yeah, place of worship. The city sort of grew up around her places of worship and what she she started. Yes, as I hope through through sort of our wander through the rest of the building that will become apparent. Um, I mean, it's as with all history there's some good bits of history there's some you know um there's some destruction and death and um but that's what that's what make, yeah makes us life and death doesn't makes it makes it interesting yeah so this one here is um Ethelreda being um consecrated as the abbess of her uh convent at ely and um i'm not a feminist i'm an all for equality but it's lovely to know that Ethelreda actually founded a double community here, men and women worshipping together. Um, so she was well ahead of her time. Yeah. Um, and the lovely sort of, you know, circle of life or, you know, is that now, obviously, again, we have um, female clergy within the Church of England, but we have our residentiary canon, uh, Jessica Martin. So, you know, um, the male and female clergy you know religious role still goes on in the 21st century yeah and again so there's that continuing matrilineal line yeah it's fantastic yeah, yeah. As I, so this is her being um as i say uh, installed as abbess uh, we think that's about 673 um sadly she is only abbess for six years she died in 679 and that's remembered over the next capital here Again, I think you can probably make out Jack, um, her lying, so her head's on the right-hand side and she's lying with a staff across her and people praying at her bedside. It's quite a solemn image. It is. Um, Again, just to... And apologies for repeating myself, but she was very much respected and loved. then and and always and her death was because of a tumour on her neck and she thought that was God's punishment um, in her younger days she'd like to wear jewellery and scarves so she thought this tumour was her punishment for that um, on the right hand side it commemorates if you just want to move over so hopefully now you can see her body in a sarcophagus at the bottom of the image so originally um, she asked to be buried outside the church um, because she was a very pious lady and she didn't want any ceremony or you know she just wanted to be buried like the poor people of the area however due to the love of her after her death um, in 695 her sister Siaxberger who had become abbess here decided to move the body into the church 
and by chance they found this beautiful marble sarcophagus which was just the right size <laughs> of course <laughs> um and so that commemorates say the moving Ethelreda, um translating her body into the cathedral and we celebrate her translation on October the 17th. So um, her feast day is coming up so soon. Coming up, yeah. yeah, she has two feast days. One's the 23rd of June um, to commemorate her death and the, uh, say the other one, 17th of October, the uh, commemoration of her translation. And when you say translation, what does that mean? So that means the moving of her body. So the initial uh, translation was moving her body from the sort of pauper's graveyard outside to um, a much sort of uh, more holy sp- and spot inside the church. And then later on, um, as the Norman church was being built, her body had to be moved into the appropriate place. And her last translation, and we'll get onto that later, um, in the 13th century, we um, built a new extension on the East End now, um, which you'll see later. and. Um, this was built specifically to house Ethelreda's shrine, so that was the last place. And I believe that Bishop Northwold, who built the presbytery and carried out the last translation, did it again on the 17th of October to maintain oh. that, con- uh, you know, tradition. So, yeah. um, yes, so that's yes, translating the body from one place to another. Because it's quite a dangerous thing digging up someone's remains f- for the person, because sometimes they are it's a uh, it's a moment of great reverence uh, comes to mind Richard III being um, brought up and, and given a proper burial but so often people's remains get dug up to be um, vandalized and, and burnt so it's um it's great to see a, a real reverence towards her that they would feel it necessary to do these these movements for her for her body yeah. Unfortunately, we mentioned earlier on that there are sort of, you know, some good news stories and bad news stories. Um, you're preempting, unfortunately, a bad news story, but again, we'll get to that later. We'll get to that later on. Um, and sorry, what I should have mentioned um, is that after during the first translation, so from her pauper's grave, um, her body was found to be uh, uncorrupt. So the tumour had disappeared, her clothes were intact, and she was looked well. Um, and wow. Yes, uh, a bit like Cuthbert and other saints. So, um, yes, that was one of, again, one of the posthumous miracles, uh, probably her first posthumous miracle. So um, you've got to remember already there's, although we've only just got to her death, there's a sort of, a, you know, an aura about this lady, um, you know the miracles that are we're talking about you know she's starting to become well known and yeah say somebody very important and i think and hopefully i'll sort of mention it but she's a local saint you know how many churches are dedicated although the cathedral is now not dedicated to her but you know how many places are founded by somebody lo- who's you know born locally and yeah, as you mentioned earlier, this is a special area to her, so, yeah. It was at this point, coming to the end of the story of Ethelreda, when Rebecca introduced me to a fellow guide, Will, who had an obvious passion for the cathedral. Jack, sorry to pause, but I no, just would yeah. like to introduce you to Mr Will Schenk. Um, there's not an awful lot that Will doesn't know about the building. Uh, well, 
Um, but yeah, <laughs> 18th and 19th century. That's my forte. Yeah, that's his forte. Um, and this building's special to you? Yes. Yeah, it's I? special yeah. to a lot of people. That's what I, thank you for backing me up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's one of the reasons we all volunteer here is because we love this place. And it gives us um, access in a way that we would not otherwise have so that we can explore often when we're not, you know, between times when we're on duty, then you can always slip to, you know, a small chapel. You can have a look at a piece of carving that you may have overlooked. We keep rediscovering things that we thought we knew. And of course, it turns out we didn't nearly know enough and finding completely new things that we had never even suspected. So that's one of the pleasures of this building is continually making new discoveries and rediscovering old friends. A real treasure trove just of nooks and crannies that you yeah. keep finding. And the number of people who just walk in and walk out thinking, oh, and you wonder, what are they, what are they seeing as opposed to what I'm seeing? I walk in here and my eyes just light up because I just see so many possibilities, so many things I'm curious about. But I was one of those kids that if it said no entry, I was climbing over the wall. <laughs> you know, if there was a ruined castle, I was there. If there was a hole to go into, I would go into it. If there was a wall to climb, I was up it. I was always exploring. And I think all of us guides have that kind of mm, an interest, that kind of curiosity. Yeah. That real inquisitiveness. To, because there seems like there is so many parts to the cathedral itself. That you could just, I mean, I, I just see doors all around the place where you can just... Oh yes, and, and, and doors that lost. lead up to stairs, that lead up to railings, that keep going. And when you get to the clerestory, you have to have a harness. But again, that's one of the privileges of being a guide. They will let us explore to have a look at... I mean, I was with Mark and with um, Jenny, and we were up with harnesses, looking at the angel ceiling, up, looking up to all those angels close by being hung with a harness at the clerestory and taking photographs. Wow. I mean, so there are all kinds of places in this building which you you know, are hidden and you don't even think to look up. And if you start looking up, you begin to realize that as with the, the vaults within the presbytery, all that carving's original. At the time of the Reformation, when so much was destroyed, they didn't get up high enough to destroy so much of that imagery. So I often tell people, just keep looking up. Because when you see destruction at ground level, if you glance upwards, like with the angels in the angel ceiling or the vaults with all the carved bosses, you see what's left of the original decoration. And most importantly, when you look all the way to the top of the actual lantern, that image of Christ, Christ in glory, that is from what's thought to be 1347. So it is part of the original decoration, a great wooden boss, more than four feet in diameter. And it's all we have left. Yeah, well, it's incredible up there. And Rebecca, you haven't really spoken yet about the... Um... No, we've, we've only got as far as the story of Ethel's reader, Will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've got rather a long way to go. <laughs> Well, well, you've got a lot of history still to get through. Yeah, yeah. Well, while we're here, um, what, what do you call... The lantern. The lantern. lantern. The lantern. It's an octagonal lantern. Yes. yes. Which seems quite unique to me. Mm, unique is the word. It is. There is only one in all of European medieval architecture. And it's above us right now. It is. And it's dating to the 14th century. And much of what you're looking at is the original lantern. Those vaults, everything above your heads that's painted and gilded. It's 14th century oak. It must be quite heavy. About 700 tons. But that's light. Yes. In architectural sure. terms. I mean, that's why they built it, because if they tried it to build something in stone, if they even could have spanned this wide of a space, it would have been too heavy. Yeah. So the wooden lantern is a solution brought on by the collapse of the earlier tower so that they had to find a lighter way of building. And that is why one of the reasons it is unique. 
And is there any r reason why they would pick an octagonal structure as mm. opposed to something else? When the tower fell, it created a great crater here. The original tower approximately would have been the size of the modern altar. So you see it created a great hole and when it, when it fell it destroyed the bedrock. So we had nothing to build on. So again, in the Middle Ages, normally if a tower fell and they fell all the time, for whatever reason, you just build a new one. But because of the fact that we'd lost the bedrock, they couldn't. So they had to go out far enough to find the bedrock. So these great stone posts, which are making up the octagon, are resting on the bedrock. And the shape is simply dictated by the fact that they had to remove one bay in each direction all the way around. So for instance, here we would have gone one bay further, one bay further, and the column to support the tower would have stood there. So what they've done is just joined it all up, creating this great octagonal space. The octagon is dictated by the already existing structure of the building. Right, so it was almost predetermined that the octagon would uh... They had no choice. Yeah, yeah but I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic structure and it really does draw your eyes towards that cent central figure of Christ, well, Christ appearing from heaven yeah. and he's blessing but keep in mind that where we're standing would have only been visible to the monks the choir originally stood here not where you see it now that was only that was only from the 19th century originally the medieval choir filled this entire space and it would have been up to two stories you would have had an opening that you would have looked up so in point of fact the lantern becomes the ceiling for the medieval choir so the monks as they are holding services eight times, day and night, would be looking up and into the space, all the way to the image of Christ. So Christ is blessing them. Not us. Not us. No. We're irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> there was a big stone screen or right. pulpitum across the end of the nave there, and we would have been... On the other side. On the other side. Oh, so there was a, uh, somewhat of a separation between... Very them. definitely because this was originally a monastic church that had to be adapted and turned into a cathedral. So they had to open it up, but they only opened it up partially so that the nave became the area that would have been open to the, well, congregation for want of a better word, but you would have had chapels where people would have prayed. And yeah. then you had this whole east end of the building from the Pulpitumas all the way to the back. That would have been the monastic portion of the building. So the south door right there is the access point by which the monks would have come in from the cloister they would have processed directly to the choir, and this is where they would have worshipped. So the building was, in a sense, divided in half. And the one exception to that is the pilgrims who would come in to visit the shrine, and they would have to somehow circumvent the choir to reach the shrine, and then eventually the Lady Chapel, which is where they would worship, and then they would make, they would make a kind of circular route and they would have to come back out again. We think that whereas the monks would have come in from the south door, the public from the west, the pilgrims came in from the north door. So these all had to be separated. Yeah. There could be no fraternization <laughs> between the monks and the public. And when did that separation begin to break down? Well, it only broke down with the Reformation. Okay. Okay, with the dissolution of the actual uh, priory. Yeah. Um, and that's when the shrine was first destroyed. That was the first thing to go. I think 1539? And from then on, there would have been no more pilgrims. And so that whole role, that aspect of the life of the building of the cathedral uh, changed. So what we're left with is the remains um, post-Reformation. I mean, this idea that we have a congregational space from one end of the building 
right through to the choir was only a creation of the 18th century. Now we're getting into my territory. <laughs> <laughs> and that great medieval choir by the 18th century, they just thought it was in the way. And so they ripped it out. So what, what was the choir structure that was here that was ripped out? It would have been wooden, would have been plaster. It okay. would have been an enormous, very three-dimensional, two-story structure. And um, as Rebecca said, it would be linked to the actual popotum. So you have a stone screen running about two stories, blocking this space, and then the wooden structure of the actual choir is attached to that. And it was so big, it actually stuck out both ends. Okay. <laughs> so even still, they couldn't fit it all in. They here. couldn't fit it all in, and rather than modify it to match the space, that's not how the middle, that's not how the mind worked in the Middle Ages. No, it had to be so big because they needed it so big. So yeah. they just pushed it in and through. Yeah. So that's why in the 18th century, when they wanted to create this great congregational space, it was in the way. I mean, to be honest, there was not much they could do, but they could have done, they could have removed it a little more sympathetically because a lot of damage and destruction was done in the in the process. It sounds like damage and destruction has been somewhat of a recurring theme throughout the history <laughs> of yes, the cathedral. Yes, you'll definitely see more when we move to it's the Lady Chapel. It's very much a kind of good cop, bad cop kind yep. of thing going on here over the centuries, over the generations. Yeah, that's what we were saying. There's sort of good news, bad news. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. It, it switches between the two. And that's what's given us the building we got yeah. today, which is a beautiful, beautiful space. So but a lot of it is restoration. A lot of it is bringing back things that we would have otherwise lost. You'll see that particularly in the Lady Chapel where even though we've lost all the carving and all the painting and much of the stained glass, we now have a building with the clear glass that's filled with light so you can actually see what's left. Mm. That would have been very different, but a lot of that has to do with the way the building has been restored in this very sympathetic way, so it acknowledges both the medieval Catholic tradition as well as the later Church of England Protestant tradition. So you see aspects of both still within this building. Yeah, well, it's great to see that layered history. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what I like about Ely is that they haven't swept the past away and replaced it with what was ever fashionable at the time, as has happened elsewhere. But we have this overlaying history. And if you can play, you know, architectural detective or religious detective, you can pick the clues up to suggest how this building has evolved and how, how it has changed. And we still have bits and pieces from the different periods of its use and its life from the past. Well, you mentioned earlier that um, looking up from, from this central aspect of the cathedral here, you can see those angels that yeah. are lining the roof. That's right. And even the stained glass windows themselves. And there's, there's other statues that are lining the, the walls. Well, having... this is, again, much of what you've noted is restoration. In okay. some English cathedrals, you find that you have a lot of sculpture. I could name a few. Most of that is 19th century because they all will have suffered at the Reformation, but there was a different attitude in many cathedrals to replace what was lost, to fill the niches again with statues. Quite a few cathedrals, their west fronts, all those statues are in niches, but the statues are Victorian, whereas the facade is still medieval. That's not the case in Ely. It's really not the case in Ely. The majority is left as it is, destroyed. When we have, for instance, here we have the 12 disciples. They're replaced on pedestals. That is a 19th century restoration, and it's a really rare example. All the stained glass you're looking at is not medieval. Okay. Every single window is 19th century. But these angels that you see at the top, you said that they, they are original. Because are original. again, anything that's out of reach, too high for them too to high. get to. <laughs> we were really lucky that these angels survived not only the Reformation, but the Civil War and the Commonwealth period, because Cromwell personally closed this building. And he did us a favor. 
because the iconoclasts, the Puritans, who were destroying these magnificent wooden hammer beam angel ceilings all through East Anglia, couldn't get at this building to destroy them. So we still have them. Wow. And that's really rare. So they would be some of the few examples of um, icons dating from before the, that's exactly the Reformation right. period. Because they were, again, basically out of reach. And yeah. then because of the mm, period when the cathedral was actually closed, nothing further could be destroyed. What we lost, we lost at the Reformation. But there's very little later destruction. And by the 19th century, you begin to have restoration. That's what you're seeing as well. Will had begun to speak of the destruction of the cathedral that had taken place during the Reformation and somewhat restored by the work in the 18th and 19th centuries. But it wasn't until we moved into the connected Lady Chapel of the cathedral later on in the tour that the extent of this destruction really became apparent. But before doing so, we stopped in the northern transept of the cathedral that housed two small chapels, one to the patron saint of England, St George, and the other to his predecessor, St Edmund the Martyr. So we're standing next to these two small chapels that are just yeah. off to the side of, of the main area of the, the cathedral. And what I always find interesting about some of these bigger cathedrals, and you mentioned that Ely doesn't have many of them, but they're, they're chapels within cathedrals, mm -hmm. which is quite um, an interesting way to, to have a worship. You have this huge cathedral, which is um, obviously more than capable of providing the services of worshipping God. But then you have these very small secluded areas, which mm -hmm. some people find obviously find more intimate and exactly. allow for a different style of worship. Yeah, different experience. Um, whenever you go at the moment, unfortunately, as you can see, they're, due to the current situation, they're barricaded off. Um, but you do have to be careful when you're, if you're taking a guided tour because you will see people sitting quietly. And again, whether that's for prayer or whether that's just, you know, the cathedral is for people of the Christian faith, but it's for people of all faiths and none. And some people just want a quiet spot, you know, uh, to to reflect on things and you do have to be very mindful when you're walking around the building. Um, this is a place of worship, it is a sacred space and there are people who come here because it's that. And so yes, they say we've got the chapel to Bishop Edmund, if you just, uh, sorry, Saint Edmund. So again, um, as you can see, most of our stonework is exposed. But if you just look up on the north wall there. Oh yes. So, I'm sure you know the story of St. Edmund, that he wouldn't renounce his faith, and uh, the invaders tied him to a tree um, and shot him dead and then chopped off his head. Can you, can you see just about a man sort of attached to a tree in the middle? Yeah, with four and arches. Yes, and the arches. Um, and the story goes that his head rolled onto a rubbish heap and was found by a wolf protected it until Edmund's people came to bury him because you can't have a proper Christian burial without your head I believe um, and if you're happy um, to go to the Lady Chapel on that note um, heads 
um, become very significant again then. So if you'd like yeah. to follow me. Certainly. With this foreboding introduction to the Lady Chapel, we walked along the cathedral's eastern end and then through a passage that makes its way between the cathedral and the Lady Chapel itself. Entering the chapel was like stepping into a hospital room the size of a great hall with bleached white walls and a triangular pattern of black and white tiles making up the floor. There were no pews, no baptismal font and only a simplistic altar quoting the first chapter of John's Gospel. But I could see that the walls were intricately decorated with carvings and statues. The sensation was both instantly expansive and reflective as light poured in through the unfiltered windows and illuminated the walls within. But this chapel of purity had also seen a period of great destruction. Wow. So walking in here, you, it's so brightly lit and so white almost. Yeah. There's a real purity to the room because there's not much in here. No. In terms of furniture, I suppose. I was going to say there's not <coughs> much that's... Obviously, it's That's an interesting statement because, yeah, if we walk to the middle and sort of have a look around and just sort of have a think. So we were talking about what the building would have looked like. So I want to imagine, as you can see, around the walls there are an awful lot of niches. So all of these niches, although they're empty now and we use them to um, sit for concerts and um, services but originally they would have been full of statues on the next tier there are also empty niches again they would have been filled with statues and if you look down the east end you can just see can you see the outline of green you can almost see oh, yes. where one of those statues would have been um, and again there's another level which would have been filled full of statues and then we've got a tiny bit of stained glass over one of the south windows over the entrance and that was actually put in at the end of the 20th century it's medieval fragments of glass put together in um, what we you know um, would say is a medieval design and this is just to sort of let you imagine what it would have looked like but you need to imagine every single window of this lady chapel filled with that so you've already got sort of the picture of the statues everywhere, stained glass everywhere. Again, we're going to talk about colour. So if you look down the east end, you can see the traces of red behind the altar, uh, red and greens and golds. It would have been filled with colour. So it would have looked almost completely the opposite. Dazzling, yeah. Yes. Um, and as we were just talking about, people coming to Ely. So it, it's no different back in the... 14th century when this was built they would have heard about this wonderful lady chapel at Ely the cult of the Virgin Mary was very strong then you know the Virgin Mary was the link between heaven and earth you know our link so we prayed to her um, to intercede know. for us yes exactly yeah. um, and so people would have come and there are still pilgrimage badges found all over the you know uh, I think the Thames, the mud flats of the Thames are a good place to find pilgrimage badges and other treasures like that because people may have travelled by sea to get round, you know, gone round the coast and it's also, I think, it's a good place to preserve them. So yes. people would have come from miles um, as they do today, you know. So, 
yeah, no different, you know, 700 years on. Yeah. Um, people still doing the same things. But the other thing in the sort of, the main thing we came in here because we were talking about heads. Um, if we go to the south, Jack, I'm going to ask you to um, spot the deliberate mistake here. So you see all the carvings. This is actually the depiction of the life of the Virgin Mary. Ah, uh, yes. But can you see what's missing? Well, yeah, all of their heads. All of their heads. And the poignant thing about that is that this carving's done in a stone called Clunch, which is a local stone. It's a soft chalk, so it's easy to do all this beautiful fine carving. However, if we asked one of the workmen for a couple of hammers, you and I would destroy all this in a matter of hours, probably. So whoever did this originally has gone round and deliberately chiselled off the heads. It's far harder to do what they did than it is to completely destroy it, so they are really making a statement. And right. this was done at the time of the dissolution of the monastery. Um, again, there's sort of, um, whether it was done at the time of Henry VIII or probably more uh, likely Edward VI and the Lord Protector Somerset, um, I think it's always quite funny that Henry VIII was quite a proud Catholic. He just, you know, didn't agree with their, yeah, their views on marriage. Um, so it's, you know, a he lot of people... just needed that male heir that we were talking about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Again, it's a history repeating itself centuries on. Um, yeah, the story changes, but it doesn't, so... Um, because it, was, it really was Edward VI that sort of took up those... Um, well, Edward VI was quite a young king, yes. but he took up those um, more theological ideas exactly. of, of icons being you know, against. Yeah, and so, so, yes, I mean, we blame Henry VIII, but if you look into it deeper, it's, yeah, it's the injunctions in the reign of Edward VI that probably caused all this to be done. But and that's because he was a younger king and able mm. to be sort of manipulated a bit by yeah, Thomas yeah, Cranmer and the like. Exactly, as I manipulated, um, I suppose also you give a youngster power, you sort of, you can, you know, plant seeds into their minds, can't you? So I don't know how you find it. It's beautiful, but sad, but yeah. yeah. there's a real eeriness to it because, and it's very interesting that you say that there's, it, it's, it's really deliberate what they've done, mm. having to remove just the heads yeah. and leave, leave yeah. the rest of the bodies. Yeah. So they've obviously really thought about it. Okay, yeah. Um, we were talking earlier about one of the, um, the sort of the way the church was, so, or the cathedral was separated and the public were not, um, you know, we weren't very important at all. Um, and how the monks worshipped under the uh, central tower and then the octagon and lantern, and there was this stone screen separating the public um, who would have worshipped in the main body of the nave. Um, and we actually got kicked out of the nave in the mid-late 14th century because um, our worship was disrupting the monks on the other side. We were making too much noise. <laughs> And they built a lean-to church on the north side of the cathedral, so when you're walking around the north side, you can actually see the discoloration of the stone for six bays, and that's where the lean-to church was. And that lasted a couple of hundred years. 
and again it's just sort of just by chance but a visitor came to Ely and complained of that parish church being, uh, I think, it noisome and dangerous. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it was obviously, uh, you know, a bit the worse for wear. And that was around um, 1560, uh, when the Lady Chapel was no longer in use. There was talk about taking the Lady Chapel down and selling off the stone to, you know, um, pay the king. But the parish church got moved into here, so it saved Our Lady Chapel. Oh, wow. So, again, through all these little quirks of fate and the sort of the bad news stories, oh, we've got kicked out of the, the cathedral, oh, we've got, uh, you know, um, in the end, all that happened and it managed to save Our Lady Chapel. That's why we still have this Lady Chapel. And it was the parish church till 1938. Oh, wow. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, so it wouldn't have... So the entrance, that's why the entrance we just came in was um, restored in the m millennium because the par parishioners would have come in that little um, south-western little entrance. Actually, you can't see it there, but it's just around the corner there. So they would have come in the north of the church and in that little door and into the parish church here. And yes, as I say, thankfully save the Lady Chapel, whereas you don't see it in a lot of the cathedrals. And um, do they still hold uh, worship celebrations here now? I thank you for mentioning that because most of when I'm giving a tour or talking to people about the Lady Chapel, one of the few things that I always say, and I've nearly forgotten to say it, is we hold Compline. Here. So Compline would have been one of the last services that the monks would have um, held as part of their daily worship. And during the seasons of Lent and Advent, every Tuesday evening, we have Compline in here. Again, we reinstate Compline. Um, it's um, sung responses, so the priest taking it, it will have a few members of the choir and they'll sing the service and the responses. And um, the congregation will... Um, be offered a candle so it'll be candle lit um, and I defy anybody I, I don't um, if you're Christian if you're Muslim if you're no faith at all um, I defy you not to sit in here and listen to Compline in that beautiful atmosphere and your blood pressure and your heart rate go down and you just feel better about yourself it's <laughs> it's just the most wonderful wonderful service and everybody is welcome as a people we keep going about you know this is primarily a place of christian worship but everybody's welcome you know and um if you're hearing this and want to come to ely and you're not of the christian faith please come anyway yeah, yeah you know you're very welcome um as i say and that's some of the best responses i've got are from buddhists and jews and um, yeah, Muslims, we have great conversation. They love the history, you know. So, so it's just, um, again, our uh, mission statement, welcome. We welcome everybody. So, yeah, so, so if you're listening to this and you haven't been to Ely, please yeah, come along. Come along. <laughs> I think there's, there's something, as you were saying earlier, there's something both sad uh, about this room, the fact that there has been like, a, quite yeah. a vast level of, of destruction and deliberate destruction but there's also a great purity to it I know it was very interesting and um, your reaction when you walked in here when you said wow 
is not uncommon. And, yeah. it, you know, it makes me smile. Beneath this face mask, I was smiling. And, you know, it's, it's lovely to sort of see people's reaction, but then also to actually tell them. And, you, you, you know, you want this to be a very positive experience, but it does make people think, um, yeah, what we've been through and, and just sort of what people in the past, we've got to remember, you know, they had a totally different mindset. This was really... Can you imagine your daily life, you've been a Catholic, and then all of a sudden, you know, I mean, how traumatised must have the, just the normal everyday people have been when the, all this was going on? Yeah. yeah it, for, it, for the monks and nuns that were here, what, what happened to them through that period? Um, so some of the older monks were pensioned off, and the, um, the last prior, uh, prior steward became the first dean, and some of the monks became part of the chapter. Um, so yes, there, although there was no longer a monastery here, we continued as a cathedral um, and we've been a cathedral. We originally started off as a monastery um, and, uh, in the time of Ethelreda. We haven't touched on the fact that um, Ethelreda's original monastery um, was destroyed by the Vikings or the Danes when they came over, as they did in a lot of the, you know, um, Peterborough and other places but then at the 10th century um, Dunstan and Ethelwold Ely was part of their sort of reformation of the monastic um, order you know the Benedictine tradition and so we were refounded as a Benedictine monastery then then we were men only um, quite interesting although they you know were still very reverent to Ethelreda um, yeah it was a, a men only order and that was what was in place when William of Normandy came over. And as I say, then we were an abbey church to start off with. Um, but it was only when we had um, Hervey, Abbot Hervey, who came here and he had ideas of grandeur and decided he'd like to be a bishop. So he applied to the king and sort of said, if I you know, give you some land and pay you plenty of taxes, can I become a bishop? So we. We um, took our lands from Lincoln, so apologies to Lincoln, that's <laughs> the Diocese of Lincoln. We stole our lands and only became a bishopric in um, 1109, um, which, again, bear in mind, Jack, I'll, I'll have another test question for you. If we go through to the pres presbytery, there is something missing in Ely, which, um, again, can cause controversy at times. So <laughs> I've, I've given you a clue there, so hopefully... <laughs> From the Lady Chapel, we made our way back to the eastern end of the main cathedral, to the presbytery that housed the high altar and the choir. 
The choir is made of tiered wooden seating, with carvings of both biblical scenes and those of ordinary life. While the high altar is made of Italian marble and depicts the events of Holy Week, being the lead up to Jesus' death on Good Friday. Rebecca began by telling me how the presbytery used to also house the shrine of Ethelreda, and pointed out that it too was destroyed during the Reformation period. Near to where we were standing was the tomb of Bishop Thomas Goodrich, who wrote a famous decree in 1541 that states that all images, relics, table monuments of miracles, shrines, etc., be so totally demolished and obliterated with all speed and diligence that no remains or memory of them shall be found for the future. A direct result of this decree was the destruction of the shrine of Ethelreda. And with this in mind, Rebecca and I began to think about the beliefs of the people who would have worshipped at the cathedral throughout the Middle Ages and the Reformation, and what their life would have been like. So, I mean, if we start at the beginning, um, so where we stood actually just behind us, so this pillar here is part of the original, this is where the original East End would have been. And then in the 13th century, I think I touched on him earlier, Bishop Hugh of Northwold um, became bishop here. He had been abbot at Bury St Edmunds. And he wanted to add six bays in the early English style um, to house the shrine of Ethelreda. You know, he wanted a glorious place for Ethelreda. So um, if you look up and don't hurt your neck, can you see the boss there? Oh, um, yes. Yeah and that's Ethelreda and below up in the middle of the yeah below Ethelreda's boss would have been her shrine and what you've got to imagine again sorry for I keep asking you to I'm asking you to do a lot of work today to imagine <laughs> it's um, hard work imagine <laughs> exactly so today we've just got a simple slate plaque where Ethelreda's shrine would have been but before we would have had so a tomb chest canopies uh, you know, the iron rail, the ferretry round, we wouldn't have just had Ethelreda, we would have had her sister, Siaxberger, who became abbess after her. We would have had her niece, Ermanilda, who also was abbess after uh, Siaxberger. Um, Bishop Hugh was asked to be buried here. Um, controversially, we were supposed to have St Alban here as well, but that's another story for, <laughs> yep, another day. Now, So this would have been full of uh, shrines, massive shrines colorful where we've just walked up we sort of you know uh, we would have come in from the north transept and walked up where we were there and come in here and yeah uh, made our offerings said our prayers i i know um obviously ethelreda being a, a virgin saint um pregnancy probably was one of the reasons you know you pray to ethelreda but i know there are records she was quite popular for toothache as well <laughs> but it's, it's just again putting yourself in their mindset people those days didn't have the nhs um what did they have that you know and their religion was their sort of you know the main sort of stay of their life and ethelreda their local saint yeah so this would have meant everything to them and on the way to the cathedral we were talking about purgatory you've always got to remember that you know in the middle ages purgatory and the sort of you know your soul after dying went through purgatory before you know um you could reach um heaven um they they were very aware of purgatory and even just offering a couple of pence or a bit of candle wax you know 
um, to anything to help your soul get through there and say so not only have you got to imagine sort of visually a different much different picture but you've got to imagine a much different mindset and um, yeah see see this cathedral church through the, the minds of the people then um, yeah so I say it's again you think of that then it's gives you a lot different experience of the building I think yeah and I guess also shows you that the people then like death was such a big part of their life mm. and it was all around them and it was like constant uh, now we're in the middle of a pandemic so death might be a bit more yeah to the forefront th yeah. these days as well but the idea of purgatory as a way to and and working through that would have would have been so important to yeah. them yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what the average lifespan, but it was an awful lot shorter. So it was something very much forefront in your mind. And again, they were genuine believers. You know, they, they, they believe that's you know um, what their destiny was. If that you know, if they atoned for their sins, and they would you know um, be yeah resurrected. <laughs> yeah. Um, One of the other things that the Reformation tried to get rid of as well. Yeah. Um, so the Reformation, that's why you see nothing here now. All the shrines were destroyed. Um, and again, going back to the good news, bad news, um, Ethelreda Shrine was destroyed. Um, there are supposed to be fragments, you know, um, of her relics uh, around. In fact, actually in the Catholic Church in Ely, um, they're said to have had a hand. And the story is that um, it, the hand was found in a priest hole in a cottage in, near Arundel which is where the Duke of Norfolk seat is and he was well they still are a prominent Catholic family so it's quite likely that a monk could have got some of the relics out and somewhere safe and as they now it's in in the Catholic uh, also St Ethelreda's um, in Ely so the Catholic Church so um, but yeah I don't understand myself personally okay you believe in this new form of worship and but surely the sort of the sanctity of the dead I, I, yeah I, I can't get my head around that sort of yeah the statues in the lady chapel but that that's the bit that sort of really still yeah mm. upsets me a little bit to be honest you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah don't mess with the dead exactly especially so if you're unsure you, you <laughs> want to be pretty pretty That's convinced yeah i mean the men doing it they were only working on orders and you don't know how they felt they could have been it's a really good point actually you know how did they feel doing this um did they really buy into it were they yeah um did they sneak away a bit of yeah. Ethel Dreda? <laughs> Who knows? Because it's quite, uh, the, the, the thinking behind it was quite theological and had required a fair bit mm. of reasoning to, to come to the conclusion that we needed to get rid of these sort of shrines. Yeah. And so you wonder whether the, the ordinary person who were carrying out the specific works they would have been aware of, of the sanctity of the dead, but yeah. they probably were less aware of the, the notion of getting rid of the shrines because mm. they represented some, exactly. some idolatry. In yeah. Yeah, you can't really envisage a sort of a briefing meeting beforehand. This is why we're doing it, guys. <laughs> yeah. Off you go, you know, we're doing it for a good reason. But as you can see today, the presbytery is set up. I mean, um, 
at the moment worship we're lucky to be back worshiping in the cathedral and this is often where we held morning prayer so thankfully morning prayer and even song are reinstated now so um even song is normally in our beautiful choir behind us um but now um, because of social distancing it's held underneath the lantern and um, with the congregation in the nave um pretty much the same for sunday morning services um so as i say it's it's just lovely to be back even though the dean and chapter were you know did a wonderful job during lockdown um you know holding services from in fact actually it was quite nice the dean is lucky enough to live in the um old um chapel part of the monastic buildings the old infirmary chapel and he um often took the sunday service from his study which you know as a former chapel so again this full circle at notion um <laughs> and yeah um so so we've you know carried work carried out worshiping but slowly but surely we're getting back to somewhere near normal so you're obviously quite an active member in in the congregation then here i come as often as i can um since lockdown um well there i mean the cathedral obviously um there are so many activities well uh, what's the word um that they take part in there's prayer groups you know bible study um there's an awful lot on offer the one group that i'm quite involved with is renew um cathedral environment group we've only been going a couple of years um and it's just lovely to be part of a group of like-minded people you know um God's creation is a wonderful, wonderful thing. It, we are very lucky to live in Ely. You see a lot of it. Anybody looks at Twitter, have a look at our uh, Twitter feed. You'll see some most gorgeous pictures, but we need to protect our environment. So the cathedral are working very, very hard. Even through lockdown, you know, um, we've been still thinking about it. And um, so, yeah, that's... And we are part of the Erosha eco church scheme and we um i hope i don't sound too proud but um <laughs> i think we can give ourselves a bit of a pat on the back we went straight past the bronze award and straight onto the silver we'd done such a good job with both with worship our worship um the reverend jenny gage is um you know leading this group she's our minister for social justice and um she's very proactive and you know um sort of rallied the troops so yeah through worship through activities we we just last saturday socially distanced reinstated our litter pick our monthly litter pick and simple acts like that as say meeting friends fellow members of the congregation and just trying to brighten up ely our local environment um so yeah we've got renew we've got cafe church which is our younger um sort of you know congregation members they're really proactive we were talking earlier about community so yeah we're, we're christians but we're, but we're hopefully we're christians working for our local community yeah. and and further afield you know as they so um yeah i think i was explaining to you earlier that i started as a guide and actually then was confirmed here um when i saw that it wasn't as scary, you know, all these people that come to church week in, we were just normal people like myself and welcoming and friendly and 
um, yeah, it's say I find it very inclusive, friendly, and supportive. As I say, no, it's it's a very active. Um, Was yeah. there? There's there's one thing to see the the beauty of a community that that works together and it's quite cohesive, but then there's another thing to really dedicate your your life and and be convinced of of worshiping God. Was is was. What sort of led you to take that next step of... Um, I've always believed in God, I've never, but I haven't been a very good Christian. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I've always said my prayers as I, I, I've never... And again, I feel um, a little bit... What's the word? As if I'm bragging that I've never doubted the existence of God. I've never had that. So, yeah. But I have to say, I haven't been a very good Christian and it's just sort of seeing... And sometimes you think, oh, I can't, I can't do that. And if I go to church, it, it seemed unattainable. I don't know, say maybe that sounds a little pathetic, a little weak-willed. But even if it does sound pathetic and weak-willed, then I've met people here. Um, I'm going to give a shout out to Canon Jessica Martin, who sort of, you know, um, prepared me for my confirmation. You know, she'd she'd sit and listen, listen patiently to my daft questions you know um and my sort of doubts and and she'd answer them you know um, not necessarily what i always wanted to hear um which is good um but she was you know and say just the people within the congregation they're just supportive you know we've all got our own faith journeys but with the support of both the clergy here and the congregation you know, you can work towards becoming a better person and a better Christian. And I don't know whether that's your classic story, but that's that's my story. And um, yeah. yes, I'm grateful for it. But it's quite interesting, though, when the cathedral was shut from middle of March to the beginning of July. Um, it's a beautiful place of worship, but it's not essential. Mm. And that was a really sort of, you know... Um, quite a strong lesson you know quite a good lesson to learn that yes I adore this place as I think that's probably come across but it's not essential yeah. you know church is not a building yeah yeah that, yeah that's really interesting because yeah. I was going to say that you come into a place like this and even if you're not a religious believer you do get some sort of sense of something otherworldly mm-hmm. about the area but once you get to a stage of belief, the the building can yeah. can to a certain extent go by the wayside. Yeah. Definitely, as I say, no, we're thrilled to be back. But um, yeah, it's, it's it's not necessary. The church is the people. Yeah, mm. most definitely. Um, but um, no, I'm, I say, but I am very glad to be back. And yeah, yeah, yeah. it is that <laughs> it is that community. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Which is interesting because that's the first thing that you really got involved in. Yeah. Is the community itself. Exactly. So for all of this, I think I've talked about the people as much as the building. To me it's it's the people who've built this over the you know, over the centuries, you know, who's just just remembering all of them and their beliefs and, and again in worship, you know, that's what we're doing. We're you know, we've got the um Last Supper on the Rarados there, you know, when we're having communion we're Honouring that, aren't we?
After hearing Rebecca's story and the activities of the lively community, I began to learn that the cathedral continues to play an important part in the spiritual lives of those who live in the community and those that visit. It was great to see that this majestic piece of history had not become a relic of a bygone age of religious devotion, but remained a vibrant spiritual home of a modern-day community who welcomed all to experience the beauty and magnificence of the cathedral. But before finishing our tour, Rebecca and I had a final stop in the Western Nave, where I heard some more interesting and inspiring stories of this great and enduring cathedral. Now, Rebecca, we've sort of walked, we're walking sort of the lengthways of the, of the cathedral, and you walk across a, a couple of those tombs along the way. Mm-hmm. And I've always wondered whether there is actually people in there or if, or if they're more of just a, 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 a plaque of remembrance. Um, you've opened a can of worms there, Jack. Um, the tombs have been moved. Um, we've spoken about um, sort of the disrepair that sort of the cathedral fell into after the dissolution of the monasteries and the um, Commonwealth. And um, in the 18th century, um, they started reordering. So we got rid of our stone pulpitum. We've just talked about moving the choir. They would have had to move a lot of plaques around the 19th century. They've moved a lot of them again. Um, so to be honest, we haven't a clue right. where anybody is. <laughs> However, there is one actually. It's really um, quite, you know, pertinent that you ask that now. This one here. Yeah. Would you have walked over this if we hadn't stopped or mentioned it? Yes, definitely. <laughs> It's quite, it's very nondescript. Very nondescript, so obviously it's lost its brass. Um, and it is a chap called Alan of Walsingham. So I think you can just about see. Oh yes, yes, Alan it's inscribed into the floor. Um, if you just walk here, Jack, can you just about see a bishop's mitre and a crozier there? Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah, you can just make out the outline. So, um... We've been talking for quite a while, but we haven't sort of mentioned how the central tower f- collapsed. Um, Will was talking about, you know, that it did collapse in 1322. And at the time, Alan of Walsingham was the sacrist. So, you know, in charge of the building, the monk in charge of the buildings here. Um, and he's supposed to have grieved vehemently um, because he th- <laughs> it was probably his fault. They'd started digging the foundations for the Lady Chapel the year before. Um, and probably unsettled the foundations of our central tower that caused it to collapse. However, it was Alan who set about designing what you were talking about earlier, this octagonal shape, um, and employing the king's carpenter, William Hurley, to put on the wonderful um, lantern up above. So he is buried here looking up at his creation. Ah. (laughs) And why he's wearing a mitre... um, he was so loved by the monks that um, when Bishop Hotham died, who was the bishop at the time of this work, um, they wanted Alan to be their new bishop, but the Pope um, didn't agree with that. However, the monks, we think, had the last laugh by um, burying him with a plaque with a mitre on. So, um, yeah, I think that's, yeah. Fourteenth yeah, century uh, sense of humour. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, that's Alan waltzing. Um of course, there is one thing um, that I absolutely adore, which is above us, 
is our 19th century painted ceiling. Um, up until the 19th century, this was just wooden beams. Um, and there was no beautiful carving like we were looking at in the north transept. Again, you've got to think that all the money was spent down the east end. So on the important, we keep saying that this is not the important end. So, you know, they'd spend all their money on the beautiful presbytery. And then by the time they got here, you know, it's standing, it's OK. It's only for the public. Um, it can cover them and that's about it. Yeah. So up until the 19th century, it was just plain wooden scissor beams up there. And it was the Victorians, um, the Dean George Peacock came here from Cambridge, very talented mathematician, but he came here to Ely and he drove our 19th century restoration. Um, and again, just one of those characters from our history. He just won, I mean, the Victorians were, you know, very dynamic, innovative, you know, um, it was a very era, so, um, but he drove and how his enthusiasm to get everybody sort of alongside giving money his clergy you know the chapter they all sort of were sourcing stained glass you know um writing the history looking into the architectural history to you know make sure they were restoring it as they thought it should be sometimes they've probably gone a little bit over the top but um it was a friend of the clergy that volunteered to paint this for free wow. um, so they boarded it over and um, I'm going to ask you if you can spot the difference so if you count six panels from the far end yeah and then so you should be at Ruth and Boaz right above us and then if you look at the next one up which is Jesse can you see any differences Jack it's a bit lighter yeah so the chap who started painting it, um, he, not surprisingly, came every spring to do the work um, yeah. and took him, took him about three years to do the first six panels and say come in for a few months in the spring, early summer. And he went away one winter and unfortunately died of a heart attack. Oh, damn. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was a bit of a yeah, um, shock to everybody. If you think, when you've been walking around, whether consciously or subconsciously, you've seen a lot of Victorian work that's been going on. So the amount of money they were spending, and then some chap said, oh, I'll do this for free. Again, just for the glory of God. He was about Christian, talented artist, and also a pretty wealthy man. What were they going to do? Well, luckily, his best friend was also <coughs> devout Christian, talented artist, wealthy man, and he finished it in his memory. Wow. Um, and I just absolutely when I heard that story I thought yeah right <laughs> <laughs> and I looked into it and I've read The Strangers the chap who started his diaries and it's as simple as that they were good it's friends they've known each other since they, yeah seven seven eight years old That's um, incredible. similar sort of tastes as they grew up um, and yeah it's just so again it's just one of those lovely human interest stories um, how long is how long is the western now now you're asking. <laughs> um, I, it's, we are the fourth longest cathedral in the country. That's the whole cathedral. Um, and I'm not sure of the exact length of the nave. Um, and when you think about it, actually, we're truncated now because the original, we should have been another bay, so the nave would have been even longer. But, yeah, um, yeah so we, we are fairly long. Um, but I would think it would be almost 
hundred meters. Hmm. Could well be, yes. So, um, yeah, I, I would have the details. I can, I can get them to you. Do you think is? Do you think Bolt could run from there to there that's in under actually, ten yeah. seconds? That's oh, crikey. But it's but nevertheless, it's very long. Yes, and it so is. This, it's a the, the 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 painting work is. And uh, the, I mean, what I haven't mentioned is the research that the chap the chap who started was got the lovely Victorian name of Henry Stileman Lestrange. Um, and he researched it. I mean, he went to the. He spent hours in the British Museum, which has a lot of sort of the documents that the British Library would have now. He um, went to the Bodleian. Um, he went abroad to libraries over um, in Paris. I think in um, in other parts of France, just looking at old manuscripts um, and just spending hours. And I know he had an argument with Dean Peacock over the age of you see. Um, Isaac carrying the wood there. Oh yes. Yeah. Um, there's a diary entry. And he sort of said, "Oh, you know, Peacock said he should be younger or something like that." I think he's painted him as about 24. Does he look about 24? <laughs> there, you know. So that's yeah, the level. Take. Yeah. And he, I mean, he's not getting a paid bean for this. Um, it's just wow. again, just again, the sort of devotion that people have put in. To and get actually, such yeah, just go over and just talking of sort of devotion and the people that have gone before, going back to the very beginning. Feel those chisel marks. Oh yes. So that's nine hundred year old chisel marks. In those the columns that holding up the nave. Yeah. So the that stone, part of the nave pillars, um, Barnack stone, and probably chiselled by um, somebody in the quarry just west of Peterborough and I would imagine that because these stones are fairly simple um, they would have chiselled them at the quarry to you know um, whatever the set measurement was and so, so they have an idea these are the sort of you know the marks of men who haven't any idea of what they helped create is again just mind-boggling yeah so um, and yeah. there's hundreds of them yes I mean in certain hundreds places of chisel marks yeah. on hundreds of thousands of bricks yeah There's some places you can see the mason's mark not here unfortunately but as i say so just again gives you um and all those eras we've just been talking about the 19th century and now we're talking about you know the the 12th you know it, yeah. um and and everybody in between um and today um unfortunately not this year but this will be used for worship for concerts, as we were talking about earlier, for music concerts, both secular and uh, religious. Um, yeah, can you tell me again about the um, Hunchback of Notre Dame? Yeah, and one of our, what I say, one of my favourite events ever was um, there was a screen um, hung from uh, the Central Crossing, um, and I think it's the 1923 version of the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, so black and white, um, you know, uh, silent movie. And I believe that the organist was allowed one or two views of the film before, only, I think, maximum of two. And then um, early one evening, you know, paying guests come in, we sit down and watch this film, and the organist is in the organ and um, has sighting, and he just has to play um, as he sees it now. So um, 
and what and what an atmosphere dusk i mean you can see the victorian stained glass the blues so you can imagine it's quite a darkish day out there now so the intense blues and it's getting darker and say you've got a black and white film and um I'm not just making this up, though. you know, the old bat swooping, because we do have bats in an old building, like I so said, the old bat sort of swooping across um, the central crossing there and across the screen, um, and I think that's one of the best events that I've ever been to, it, you know, what a great use of the building, but for everybody, yeah, you mm. see, you know, just getting people in here that wouldn't normally come, and... Um, without being too boring it is just a building for everybody so yeah <laughs> yeah um. it's such a great way to make it accessible to the community at mm. large yeah. yeah that's what I mean and as we were talking about my own sort of experience of you just never know if you invite just if one person has the right experience here speaks to the right person then you know maybe you've helped them on there you know um on their journey. journey of faith so yeah um, whatever just, that is yeah whatever that is exactly that's what I mean it's a um, you know it's it's not prescribed it's um, all things to all people um, yeah well Rebecca that's been a fantastic tour <laughs> so that was truly remarkable <laughs> thank you for your patience <laughs> no no I mean you, while I was doing the imagining you were doing the real work of providing the explanations um, yeah I'd say so but it's yeah. uh, the thing that I find so remarkable, and I was telling this to you earlier, was that it's still a living place in mm. in the grounds around. Yeah, it is. From as we said, yeah. our mission is worship, outreach, welcome, care, and I hope in our chat that I've co- covered all of those, uh, you know, appropriately. And um, yeah. Um, yeah, no, definitely. Well, I've I've certainly felt it. You've been very welcoming towards me. Um, but yeah, the, the vibrancy of the community—you can feel it when you come in. Everyone's—it's just—it's yeah. just a warm welcome. <laughs> yeah, no, very good. Oh dear. Well, yeah, thank you very much, Rebecca. That's Absolute been a, pleasure, Jack. Uh, thank you for coming to visit us. Following my tour with Rebecca, I took a walk around the grounds of the cathedral and through the city of Ely. I walked past the site of Oliver Cromwell's old house and found myself enjoying a delicious beef and mushroom pie at the nearby Prince Albert pub. At dusk, I returned to the cathedral for the daily devotional Evensong. The original Evensong involved the sung recitations of a liturgy found in the Book of Common Prayer, and I found it ironic that Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury during the reign of Edward VI, and someone who was heavily responsible for the destruction of numerous statues and icons around England, including the Lady Chapel, was also the man who wrote the eloquent and enduring Book of Common Prayer and provided the Anglican Church with a glorious spiritual service that remains a feature of Anglican worship throughout the world. As I reached the cathedral, I was once again welcomed by Rebecca, and then took my seat under the Great Lantern. As the boys' choir enraptured the cathedral with their ethereal song of praise, I began to think about all those who had sat in this grand cathedral, and the different ways they had sought to praise God throughout the ages. Whether it be the early nuns and monks that laid its foundations, the pilgrims that came to pray at the cathedral shrines, the reformers who destroyed the cathedral statues with teachings of introspection and personal salvation, or the modern day community that conducts widespread public outreach. Ely Cathedral today is a landmark to an evolution of devotion beginning in the seventh century with a welcoming community that retains their sole purpose.